Online Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas, and welcome to episode 86 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with us all the way from lovely La Jolla, California, with a brand new microphone, is our certified show producer and the brains behind our business, Aurora. Hello, and we are taking a little breather here at Lime Ninja Radio. So today's episode is from our Lime Ninja archives. Yes, it's a best of episode. But before we get into that, I want to let you know that I'll be down at the Southern Tier Lime Conference at Binghamton University on Saturday the 7th. So if you're in the area and you're not signed up to go to the conference, come on down. It's going to be great. Dr. Hartz will be there. Some other great experts about Lyme disease and meet some people from our region. And if you are there, be sure to stop by my table and say hello. Yeah, and I was able to be there last year, and it was just so much fun to see kind of the community that is out there and the support that everybody has for each other. It was a lot of fun. So I'm a little sad that I can't be there this year, but I'm glad that you're gonna. Yes. I'm glad that you're going to. Me too. Okay, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little about today's best of episode, Lime expert Holly Ahern. Yes, Holly Ahern is an associate professor of microbiology at SUNY Adirondack, who runs an undergraduate research lab She first encountered Lyme disease when her daughter, a highly ranked competitive swimmer, became ill with a weird set of symptoms in her senior year of high school. When Holly Ahern found out that her daughter's mysterious illness was Lyme disease, she quickly immersed herself in the subject. She soon realized about the controversies swirling around the disease and came to realize that many others were suffering like her daughter. Ahern has become an advocate for developing a broader understanding of Lyme disease, one aimed at treating the chronic symptoms commonly reported by patients who were misdiagnosed or received inadequate treatment in the stage's early stages. In the disease's early stages, her goal is to change the official CDC case definition of Lyme disease, which could attract more attention and funding. Thanks, Aurora. And here is our interview from the archives with Lyme expert, Professor Holly Ahern. Dr. Ahern, it's McKay Rippey. Hi, McKay. How are you? Very well, thank you. So you're my neighbor almost with a few hundred miles in between. <laughs> Throughway neighbors. <laughs> right. So where, which campus are you on? Uh, SUNY Adirondack, which is in Queensbury. It's in Queensbury. Okay. Yeah. So I'm up the, not only down the Thruway, but up the Northway. And up the Northway a bit. Yeah, I was um, on the website and had also Paul Smith College on the website. So they're out. That's that's a little further. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like a lot further, actually. Terrific. We had, so in the springtime, I'm an assistant coach with the Hamilton College women's lacrosse team, and we had a player a few years ago from Queensbury. Oh. So we we had a few uh, team dinners at her place when we were up playing Union and who, oh, oh, and uh, Skidmore. Yeah, we travel yep. a little extra to get up there. Well, it's um, 
It's nice up here, and it's. I love actually. I, I love the Hamilton campus. My daughter, as you probably know, is a swimmer, and um, she, because she swam for Union, Union and Hamilton always had a swim meet, and uh, it was. It's a nice trip, and it's just a really pretty campus. It it is beautiful, isn't it? Yep, it, it is. They they spend a lot of time and effort uh, on that. My wife, for and I think she still is, was on their arboretum board. Mm-hmm. Um, she works up there, and their budget for mulch for a year is over a hundred thousand dollars. Oh, that's nice. No wonder it looks great. Ex- yeah, no, they put they really put a lot of time, energy, and effort, uh, uh, including cleaning up the beer cans. <laughs> right. So let's talk ticks and Lyme and tests and CDC and. Whatever else we can squeeze in a half hour. Some of my favorite topics. Uh, I see that. You're quite the activist. Well, I, I really don't, uh, you know, I, I don't like to be considered an activist. I would like action, which I guess makes me an activist. But um, you And know, what do I, you I, consider <laughs> yourself? I don't know. An advocate? I'm not really sure. I consider How? myself a mom yeah. and somebody who realizes that this is a... A, a huge issue and a mess and somebody has to do something. So, and this, I'm not alone. Certainly there are a lot of other people that are doing the same. And, I, and now we're finally coming together and I think that yes. we're making a difference. So, and I, so I guess that makes me an activist. I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe a friendlier f- a phrase would be, uh, you're an educator at heart. Yes. Yes. That's it. That's because I, that's what I do for a living. I said, I can do this beyond the classroom and see if I can't make a difference. And so that's, that's what I, why I do what I do. Nobody should have to go through what our family went through. And, uh, and, you know, there's millions of other families that are going through it. So now, depending on who you talk to, this is an unseri- uh, an unfortunate series of events or a conspiracy or, just corporate greed. What What's your take on why things are so stuck? I think it's a perfect storm uh, with elements of all of the above in it. And I, again, I don't like to use the term conspiracy because I don't really think it was an insidious uh, event that anybody was evil and wanted to harm people. Uh, that's how it turned out, and it turned out because of the flawed way in which the, you know, right now we're moving into this realm of, I, I guess we've moved there, evidence-based medicine. Yeah. And as a result, you have to have evidence, and yeah. much of that evidence comes from clinical trials uh, because that seems to be the only acceptable evidence if you're going to have med- evidence-based medicine. And unfortunately for Lyme disease, because it was considered sort of this orphan disease that only people in the Northeast got. There wasn't a lot of time and attention. and So the core group of researchers that started working on this had become the only voice um, for Lyme disease. And they are about half right as to what Lyme disease is with, you know, in terms of it can cause an acute type of infectious disease, but it can also cause a chronic form of infectious disease. And microbiology research and research done in animals is clearly showing that. So this is a case where the microbiology 
is ahead and medicine hasn't caught up yet. But unfortunately, you have these very loud voices on the other side saying, no, this isn't, you know, this isn't Lyme disease. These people are just crazy, which is, that is evil. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, but that's human nature. Yeah. And I mean, the medical profession has been dragging its feet and protesting from the days of hand washing. This is true. You know, so in my mind, I, I'm I'm with you that it's a perfect storm, and yes, there are ingredients that that look like uh, conspiracies and so forth. But I, th- I think it, a lot of it is just human nature in groups and you know, egos, and yeah, maybe money and maybe patents and all this other stuff. But uh, people can be stubborn just over ideas, right? And medical thinking evolves. I think history has shown that clearly. You know, when everybody had lots of bad ideas that turned out to be absolutely incorrect, <laughs> and we move on to the next yes. bad theory, you yes. know, so it evolves, and you hope that the leaders in the evolutionary process are really have everybody's best interests at heart and not just their own. However, in this case, I think that now, that's changing, but I think that at least initially it was not. So yeah, well, it, it could be five years, it could be fifty years, right? Yeah, but you know, it's time. Uh, it's time. The, it's too big of a problem to just pretend it's a little northeast issue. It's not. The CDC it, themselves have acknowledged that it is a large problem with an infectious disease. No other infectious disease is treated this way. So I really believe. And although HIV, you know, AIDS is caused by a virus, um, there are many similarities between what went on in the 80s with uh, AIDS and what is going on now with Lyme disease. And it has been going on for 25, 30 years, and that's why, all right, the evolutionary phase is over with. It's time for a change. <laughs> Amen. Right. <laughs> Without a doubt. So. One of the hang-ups here, and this gets into your specialty, one of the hang-ups for sure is this horribly uh, restricted and I'm just going to say inaccurate test that's the gold standard by agreement, not because it works. How, right. how do we – how do we expand and allow other testing? I mean they're even trying to ban the other testing. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yes, um, it is crazy, and part of it is crazy because there are probably things out there that are not helpful um, for Lyme disease. Some there has to be some level of regulation uh, because, like you said, it's human nature to see an opening and take advantage of that opening. So there, ha- there definitely has to be some form of regulation. But unfortunately, what the new regulations are doing is simply solidifying this really bad test as the only thing that physicians are going to be able to use to say if somebody has Lyme disease or does not. And that is a major issue because, as you know, the test is this two-tier system of testing, which, by the way, comes directly from HIV-AIDS, from, you know, the, the way that the HIV-AIDS tests were set up back in the early 80s, that this is... Uh, the same sort system, and 
the pro- the difference is the HIV AIDS tests work uh, most of the time, and the- this test is bad. And there's a multitude of reasons why. But when you have a two-tier system and the first-tier test misses 50% of the cases, <laughs> those are 50% that will never get the chance for the slightly better test, which is only 70% accurate. Right. So that, uh, you know, needs to change. And I really believe that with the CDC coming out last August and saying that, well, you know, 10 times more cases is uh, 300,000 cases of Lyme disease, not right. 30,000. Uh, the the medical industry, you know, the the research uh, pharmaceutical industries perked up their ears and sure. said, "What three hundred thousand? Now that is something we can more put money toward, yep. right?" And that's uh, that's what's going to lead the way, honestly. I think the CDC has another zero in a closet somewhere. Oh well, that's because that's based on the diagnostic criteria that mandates that test. Right. which is wrong half the time. So you can, at minimum, double that number, I suspect. Oh, easily, right? Yep. Easily. Yep. And those are new cases. That's something else to consider. So that's new cases, and one-third of them don't ever really recover or don't recover within a three-week period. Yeah, so, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Is like, What is it about Lyme and the co-infections that, persist. Okay, so that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, why are these kind of, I'm going to call them low grade, even though they cause incredible suffering, but they don't kill you in a week like the flu does, or some of these other horrible infections. It's like, why are these low grade infections kind of blind spot for medicine? Wow, we only have a half an hour? I mean, okay, sorry. <laughs> I just spent most of the better part of a semester explaining this to my students, but that I'll do my best to sum it up in a really <laughs> little period of time. I'd like to challenge you. <laughs> okay, so the first, your first question was about what is different about these bacteria, right? Right. And from the period of time in uh, medical history referred to as the golden age of microbiology, which was when Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur uh, figured out ways to grow bacteria in culture and identify bacteria as causes of disease. That was really the late 1800s. Is that the beginning the, of staining as well? Yeah. It, like they, the, all yeah. of the techniques that microbiologists, the, the core microbiology techniques and the core practices when it comes to identifying pathogens mm-hmm. comes from that period of time. And they were so good at what they did that essentially then antibiotics came along. And so the idea was, well, we don't have to worry about bacteria because we have, we've, yeah. you know, cured the world of all bacteria diseases. Well, that was great in the 50s. And then in the 70s, we realized that wasn't really the case. And so then we also realized that the model of infectious disease that is based on um, the work done a long time ago is that all bacteria sort of have this frontal uh, attack approach. So in other words, they are, they're in your face. They, they make you sick. You, know, you, you are exposed to them. Their goal is to get inside you, to reproduce as quickly as they possibly can, spread out as fast as they can, you know, sort of conquer the world's approach. Right. And that it leads to this very robust immune response. And, you know, your immune system takes care of it most of the time. And then, you know, you become immune to it, you get antibodies, and you don't have to worry about it so much next time, right? That is how infectious disease works 
uh, or is supposed to work, and that's true for bacteria that have this sort of frontal approach. Mm-hmm. However, there are multitudes of bacteria that cannot be grown in a laboratory setting. So the tests that were historically the gold standard for identifying bacteria, culture tests and whatnot, they can't be grown in a laboratory setting because they have different strategies. They don't they aren't necessarily in your face pathogens. They are stealthy. And in fact, uh, Stanley Falco at Stanford University refers to these types of bacteria as stealth pathogens. They literally their their goal is to be your friend. They are symbionts. <laughs> they want to get inside your cells and hang out and, you know, have a nice time there. But unfortunately you know, they've evolved with us for a very long period of time. Right. But unfortunately, sometimes they're, they don't play so nice, which is true pretty much of all bacteria. And two strategies they have specifically are the ability to produce biofilms, which are literally communities of slime mm-hmm. that permit them to be resistant to antibiotics and survive adverse conditions. And the other one is intracellular growth. So in other words, these, these are bacteria, not viruses, bacteria, that invade cells, and instead of being killed as a result, they survive there, they reproduce inside the cells. That would be like Babesia, yeah? That would be Babesia, that would be Bartonella, that would be Borrelia, which, you know, they they actually, it is pretty, it is more than abundantly clear that they produce a biofilm, that they grow in a biofilm. They are producing biofilms in joints, they are producing biofilms in the central nervous system, um, unfortunately, you know, we know this from a microbiology perspective and the medical implications of that have not been followed up on at all, which right. is, you know, one of the big problems with antibiotics, right. which is your other question, right? Why doesn't a short-term dose of antibiotics uh, kill these people? or kill these people, (laughs) kill the bacteria. I think of them as people, too. (laughs) Yeah, I can't help it, you know. They, and the answer is because they they live in biofilms, they live intracellularly, and they have this ability to shut themselves off, which is something called a persister phenotype. So they, 5% of the infecting cells will just automatically shut themselves down, right, and sit inside those cells for extended periods of time without doing anything. They're not metabolically active. They're just, you know, quiescent cells that can reactivate over time. And uh, really the persister state enhances their survival sure. of the um, population. So it's a very altruistic thing for them to do <laughs> if you stop to think about it, right? So one of them, one of them will... Um, one out of five, right, will will just shut themselves down and wait. So if the rest of the population gets killed with the antibiotics, then they're still there's around. those persisters that yes. can then reactivate and keep the population going. So here, and, this this question may not have any, because that's, that's a brilliant answer, and uh, I've, I'm going to take the final exam for your course, because I feel, <laughs> I feel ready now. All right, good. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Uh, is, is there a known trigger... That for the reactivation of these uh, sleeper cells. Yes, the answer is antibiotics. <laughs> ah, so that's so, why the challenge test for the antibiotics works, huh? Um, I think so, uh, because essentially, what you know, the, the persister cells uh, stay there. Well, I shouldn't say uh, antibiotics triggers the formation of persister cells, 
removal of the antibiotic triggers reactivation of the persister cells. Oh, so that's why I'm interested in the reactivation. It's like where they go from the dormant state to the active state. Right. So basically when uh, the danger is removed, the threat to them is removed. They come they, back out. They pop their little heads out and say, okay, back to work. And now, then 5% of those new cells yes. will go into the persister state. Sure. So it is a life cycle, yes. and we need to break the life cycle. We cannot kill them all with antibiotics. That's no, not going to work. Because, they, right, they go into this, this dormant phase, this protective phase. Now, you must know uh, Dr. Shoppy and her work with the biofilms. Yes. Eva, yeah. And I have – I just – this is a total aside, but it's fascinating. It's a real-life biofilm story. I had this young man come in my office. I'm an acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. So he came in for chronic headaches He's in a consultation. Um, he's really debilitated by them. Uh, misses a lot of work. And he was saying, yeah, I used to be sick all the time. And then about a year and a half ago, uh, that all changed. And now I'm healthy all the time. I never get sick. I don't have to take antibiotics every year. I would even a couple years ago, I had pneumonia. And he's, he's a fairly young man. It's kind of, it was an interesting history. So we're, you know, he doesn't really get into it too much. We kind of go back this up. He said, you know, I have to tell you, he kind of opens up a little bit. He said, so when I was sick about a year and a half ago for the last time, I was really nauseous and throwing up a lot. He said, and then I had this incredible sneeze and I felt this, I thought it was blood, he said, coming out of my nose. And he said this entire cup full, like a mug full of biofilm, he didn't call it biofilm, came out of his sinuses. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been healthy since. So that's a great <laughs> – biofilm actual story so he had a chronic sinus infection probably who knows how long for years and years and years that was causing these recurrent infections and nobody could identify it and resisted that antibiotic treatment so forth and so on and he just got lucky and sneezed this thing out and he's been fine since oh well that's a great story and i'm going to use that in my class isn't that amazing it's a yeah. true yeah, i mean it's second hand but it's a true story it's crazy he, yeah. he was he was really scared he actually went to the doctor because so much of the biofilm came out that he was afraid that he did something seriously wrong to his body or his wow. brain or something but just anyway biofilms are serious serious stuff they are and the good news is that is increasingly recognized as a major medical concern and so there are drugs in the pipeline that can disrupt biofilms allowing antibiotics to enhance you know the activity of antibiotics to be enhanced and right. that's the next great thing that will come um, in the field of infectious disease medicine I think right and right now we have <laughs> uh, different enzyme preparations that can help yeah. And uh I know one of my favorite kind of backdoor ways inside the biofilm is uh liposomal remedies that the biofilm colonies will take in as uh, sustenance and then when they're broken apart will deliver the the herbal antibiotic or the antibiotic itself. So there are strategies we have now even before these things get to, the new drugs get to market. Right. And but what's needed are people like you who will uh, apply those methods to see if people actually get better but what would also be helpful would be clinical trials to yeah. you know show or not show improvement and uh, in the world of medicine and the insurance reimbursement for these things that's what's necessary that's what's needed it so is unfortunately that's not my ex area of expertise and it's not going to happen because 
just to say bluntly, nobody's going to make any money off of that. Right. Uh, so the, there's not going to be a pharmaceutical company that's going to jump on that bandwagon. Right. Well, if they come up with a pharmaceutical that works, um, that's great. Right. You it know, is. That's great. Uh, let's see. I have a few questions. I asked my listeners for some questions, and uh, one is from – Debbie, actually, she has three questions, but I don't know if we'll get to all of them. And uh, Debbie asks, does the Borrelia bacterium persist beyond long-term antibiotics? I think you answered this. Or other treatments, and what evidence supports that? And then she goes on to say, the CDC and the NIH have used biopsy and culture methods to look for Borrelia. Have you done any of this in the lab, and do you know why these tests aren't used clinically? Okay, so the first part of that question was about persistence yep, um, we, with Borrelia. And we covered and, that pretty well. Yeah, they, uh, the bacteria themselves, I think it's pretty clear from NIH-funded research and research done in other countries on animals in particular that Borrelia persists. They survive antibiotics. Uh, they, they, too, show the persister phenotype that I was referring to. And therefore, they, they can survive antibiotics, and they can probably survive long-term antibiotics. So for some people, and the, the question is, what differentiates the people that uh, re- continue to have persisting symptoms from those that don't? And it would appear that there are host factors involved, too. So sure. your immune system plays a role in it, as does the nature of the bacteria and the other piece to the puzzle, I think, is comorbidity or co- what you know you, people like to refer to as co-infection. What else is going on in the background of the patient? Is there another infection going on? Is there a viral infection that suppresses the immune system like the Epstein-Barr virus? Right. So these are all reasons, um, you know, and unfortunately in medicine they're looking for cause and effect mm-hmm. because of what, you know, the success of the golden age. So they're looking for this one thing causes that one disease. And in the case, this, there are many chronic diseases, not just Lyme disease that this does not apply to, that rule does not apply to. So I think it's changing. I'm hoping (laughs) that it's the, you know, at least I I will say, I think, I believe that the NIH and the CDC are finally doing what they needed to do. They, they're providing the leadership necessary, uh, to, sort of think outside the box just a little bit to change, you know, not necessarily fund the same type of research studies over and over and over again um, to try to prove a point that they can't ever prove. You know, that's the (laughs) definition of insanity time. And I think that we're, I really believe we're at a point in time where we're at the ACME, right? It's either going to go over the other side or, I don't know. Um, Slide back for a while. Right. But I think we're really approaching that peak where it's like, oh, yeah, this is a persisting infection that antibiotics won't kill, so we need more drugs. <laughs> right. And, well, well, that's, I hope so. Within the next few years, by the way, <laughs> because there's a lot of people that need this information now. Uh, it's it's awful how many people are suffering. Right. And, and I, I'm sorry, what was the second part of that question? Uh, Did I answer it? Have, why? So th- they're using some of these uh, culturing methods 
in, in your type of laboratory, and how come similar tests aren't used clinically? Okay, because the bacteria don't hang out. These are blood tests, typically. Um, for the most part, you know, the idea is to take the blood and to put it into culture media and let it, you know, let the bacteria do the rest of the job. So that can be done and has been shown to be done with animals. But the reason is, for, particularly for Borrelia, the bacteria that is known as the cause of Lyme disease, mm-hmm. the bacteria get out of the blood as quickly as they can. Um, so they go bind to collagen-containing tissues, which you know is every connected tissue in, in your body, body. Yeah. Uh, so, which is rich in the nervous system. It's also rich in the um, you know, the musculoskeletal system. So that's where they go. They leave and go elsewhere. So a, think about this when you take a, a sample of blood. You're drawing five milliliters out of a total of how many milliliters of blood circulating? I, I don't have that answer. It's a I lot. <laughs> I should know that, but I don't exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so you're taking a drop of literally what constitutes of one drop out of all of the different blood Right. You know, the blood cells that you have and trying to grow bacteria out of them, it's like a needle in a haystack. So sometimes you get a positive culture and sometimes you don't. Um, the other thing is in animals, it is noted that you can have cultures um, sit for up to 10 months and then become positive really? because of this persister state. Okay. So at some point after 10 months, it's you know, the, the other bacteria have run out of nutrients or whatever, and the bacteria will reactivate, and they can be detected live spirochetes, not their DNA, right. live spirochetes. Right. Um, that was done in uh, studies of uh, macaque monkeys most recently, within the past year even. So, and, you know, the, the sort of mainstream reply is, well, monkeys aren't humans. Oh, please. Right, but shouldn't those results be repeated in humans? Yes. Well, how hard would it be to... To organize a clinical trial to get humans to um, do that. In okay. fact, the NIH just did that too. So, so here's I'm I'm distracted by by that comment that you made. And how come in science that they'll some say something like, "Well, it this worked in mice, and so therefore it's very promising that it's going to work in humans," as opposed to, "Oh no." You know, it, that's only in monkeys and not humans. It's like what what's the politics and the thinking behind? being encouraged by some animal studies and then if they want to disprove something, pushing it away. Is that just an argument technique that microbiologists use? No, don't blame us. It's not the microbiologists <laughs> in this case. Um, I, I got to say, I think we got this. Uh, it's the it's the medical uh, uh, in this case. It's okay. the medical and the... Um, so if it is... If we are able to... First of all, if the bacteria persist then all those people that said they can't are now wrong and uh, they're not going to be, they're, they're not going to go quietly is uh, <laughs> as best I understand it at this point. So in other words, they've been saying that, nope, it, this is an acute bacterial infection for the past 30 years. And although the past 20 have been controversial because we've known it is not a simple bacterial infection for the past 20 years, so, however, all of their blood tests then will be um, obsolete, and right. they're still making money off of that. And okay. this culture method proves them wrong. So there's that's where the resistance comes from. And like I said, it's not 
on the microbiology side, it's on the medical the side of this side. case. Okay. Yeah. So, sorry. My apologies to your field. <laughs> That's okay. We can take it. Okay, good. That's right. You are scientists after all, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and last question from PJ asks, is it as hard to detect co-infections as it is Borrelia with tests? Yep, it is because uh, for the exact same reasons why Borrelia, although I have to say Borrelia is remarkable and I'm saying that as a person who studies bacteria. It is a, a marvel of evolution, and it is unique from most other types of bacteria. And I say that because they, it has the largest genome of any known bacteria, largest in terms of it's spread out across multiple molecules of DNA. They, they get rid of DNA and they accept DNA like, you know, you and I would, uh, you know, pass coffee back and forth. So they are remarkable. Now, the other bacteria are, uh, the co-infections are these growing, you know, a growing awareness of their stealth nature. They are intracellular pathogens. So mm -hmm. that is their strategy. They go inside cells, they reproduce inside cells. Um, and so we, we, what we don't know about those, um, you know, our response to those types of bacteria will fill volumes of books in the future. Uh, veterinarians understand these diseases a little bit better. Uh, they look for them. They have tests for them. Those tests are not approved for use in humans. So there are veterinary tests for Bartonella, for example, that are highly accurate, but you can't get that same test uh, in New York State anyway to be done on a human. So there you have it. I mean, the same is true of Anaplasma, Ehrlichia, which are types of bacteria that are called Rickettsias, um, mm -hmm. and they that they subvert the immune response. They try to stop you from producing antibodies. Your immune system doesn't really know what to do with bacteria that are hiding inside the their own cells, right? So your immune system has all these cells going out there to try to kill these things. Right. The bacteria get inside the cells and hang out inside the cell. I mean, that's, how do you deal with that if you're a macrophage, right? right. So it, right, without turning into autoimmune issue, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's just this, they, you know, without a target, a, a, an exact target, the switch from innate immunity, which is inflammation, mm -hmm. to making antibodies doesn't really occur all that well. And so serological-based tests are not good for stealth infections. And eventually that will become well-known and, and accepted when other DNA-based approaches uh, are better, are perfected because they're available now, but they're not, there's still work to be done there. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, all we have are these serological tests and they cause symptoms that are sort of vague and, you know, a physician is would not necessarily order those tests for that type of pathogen because it wouldn't be on the different on the list of diseases in the differential diagnosis necessarily. Although it should be, especially in New York State, <laughs> with the level of tick-borne diseases we have here, it should be the first thing anybody thinks of when somebody presents with, you know, weird fatigue, flu-like symptoms, uh, you yeah. know, whatever. Yeah, just, or just any unexplained symptom. Yes, oh, it should almost. be the first thing on the yeah. list, all it, of those tick-borne diseases. It's funny. Once you pierce the veil and go through the other side, it's all of a sudden you're surrounded by the 
these these stealth. We'll call them. Go back to that Stanford professor, the stealth pathogens. Right. I think it's really uh, you know it's not as dramatic as AIDS. It, it's I think that's one of the issues uh, or, or something horrible like Ebola. So it doesn't capture the imagination as much. But it is really everywhere. It's yep. really everywhere. It is. Dr. Aheron, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I want to leave with uh, an opening for you. Is there anything that you'd like to finish with that didn't get a chance to say that you want to communicate with people and or any websites or Facebook that you want to promote? Well, we have a uh, a group here where I'm a co-founder of our small group, the Lyme Action Network. Uh, we are getting larger as uh, – you know, the word gets out, and we have aligned ourselves with a group called the New York State Coalition on Tick-Borne Diseases, which uh, I guess that's where the activism comes in, because we are working to try to get the New York State law uh, that is right now, as we speak, sitting on Governor Cuomo's desk. It needs to be signed Still. or not signed by the 17th. What's, yep. what's the holdup? Uh, the governor doesn't have a pen, apparently. <laughs> that would be <laughs> a great camp- That would be a great campaign to send him green pens. To mail him pens, yes, yes. it would. Uh, apparently, there are concerns over the wording uh, of just like two or three words as, in terms of how broad or narrow it makes the bill. I understand there are negotiations going on between the bill sponsors and the governor. We, of course, have no. Um, insight into what's going on at all. So we're just all sitting around biting our fingernails. Yes, your, so your if state anybody, is not transparent. No, and you know that the clock is ticking. So if anybody, yeah. any of your listeners, feel so inclined to call or write to the governor's office and ask him to please just sign that bill, uh, that would be great. So the New York State Coalition, um, you know, we, we're also working with uh, the downstate, the Hudson Valley Congressman, Congressman Chris Gibson. And um, also Sean Maloney, who is the, uh, a Republican and a Democrat. I mean, it doesn't get any more bipartisan than that. Uh, to also pass a federal bill related to uh, forming a task group, you know, a, a working group to reevaluate the science of Lyme disease. So, in other words, the science, it, you know, obviously what has been the message for 20 years isn't working. Right. So. Let's go back and look at all the science and uh, see if we can't come up, if something new doesn't come out of that. And for the first time, the reason why that bill is important is because for the first time, patients, patient advocates, and outside voices are going to be allowed at the table. So it isn't going to be a one-sided, biased view anymore. Um, they're going to have to address this new research coming in and come up with ways to, to address the things we know about the bacteria. So that's why that one's important too. Good. Well, the community is getting more politically savvy, it sounds like. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning. Uh-huh. We are. All right. Thanks so much. You bet. It's good to talk to you. Likewise. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I love that interview. Yeah, Dr. Ahern's fantastic, isn't she? She really gives a great overview of the current state of research with Lyme disease and particularly uh, what's coming down the pipeline in terms of being able to battle Lyme disease. Yeah. I really enjoyed that part of the interview. Yeah, and it's also good to hear how um, the research that's being done for Lyme disease can affect the 
the larger infectious disease research as well. Absolutely. We're definitely, in some ways, the tip of the spear on some of these chronic low-grade infections. I think it's going to have a big impact in health in general over the years. Yeah. Alrighty. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully. Yes. So if you have feedback about this episode or any of the others, please send us an email at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Please like us on Facebook. We're over 600 likes. I love that. Keep them coming. Yep. You can also visit our website for links and show notes. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com. Yes. And if you don't want to miss an episode, the easiest way to subscribe on iTunes. Or Stitcher. And check back with us next week. We have an interview with Dr. Nicola Ducharme. She's a naturopath out in California and really has a great holistic way of integrating antibiotics and herbal therapies. Uh, it's a really wonderful interview. And last thing we have to do is the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Part of a ninja's training is to count to infinity twice. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.